Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Adam Schmila. Uh, we talked about private equity, but we also talked about peeling back the onion on private equity to kind of get a sense of the two in 20 uh, and how private equity investors are different than a private equity firm and what all that means to the kind of ultimate end game within private equity. So it was, it was a great conversation. I always enjoy chatting with, with Adam. Please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. So today I want to talk about the MyDay Multifocal for just a second. It has been a really great thing in our practice for our patients who are presbyopes of all areas, but you know those tricky presbyopes are always the ones that are kind of emerging where they don't want to give up any of their faraway vision, but they're having some struggles up close. And so what uh, the MyDay Multifocal has been able to do for us is to allow those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily. And then as we have those patients progress into other levels where they need more ad powers, it's been a nice, smooth transition. So the ultimate hurdle that we've seen in our practice before the My Day Multifocal was that we'd have patients who would resist any transition to a multifocal lens because of that distance blur. We just haven't seen that. So if you haven't started using My Day Multifocal in your practice, I would encourage you to start, check it out, uh, contact, reach out to your Cooper reps for those trial lenses uh, and commit to My Day Multifocal for your patients. I think they're going to like it. If you haven't checked out MacuHealth yet for your patients in category one through category four, I think there's a lot of evidence that you should be considering. The first is if we just look at AREDS 2 and what they, they talk about, MacuHealth is a, so for patients in category three and category four um, AMD, MacuHealth is a great option for them that follows that entire, um, that entire protocol. And it also adds mesozeaxanthine to the mix, which if you look at some of the evidence, I believe shows me that it's going to thicken the macular pigment better than without mesozeaxanthine. It also uses the a correct AREDS2 dose of zinc uh, at 25 milligrams. And so you don't have to worry so much about the potential side effects of zinc. The other thing to, to think about, and it's beyond the scope of this, although you've probably heard me talk on other podcasts, is that in patients in category one and two, there may be some additional benefit uh, to supplementing them with something that may be a little bit less than the AREDS2, so you don't have to add as much to it. And that's where I use the MacuHealth LMZ3. And so I think if you haven't done this yet, I'd consider MacuHealth in your practice and for your patients. And it's been great for my patients, and, um, and we really feel like we have the ability to uh, help those patients in all categories of macular degeneration. So, Adam, I had, a, I had you on originally because I wanted you to talk about the article that you wrote in, I think, Review of Optometric Business or Business Management something yep. of Optometry. Optometric something. Business. And um, about, you know, what money you could be leaving on the table uh, related to private equity. But there, then you had this conversation. I want you to talk about that, but I'm going to set this up for the listeners because then you had a conversation with a guy from private equity. It was pretty candid. And then there was this piece that you said, and I'm going to ask you about that in a minute because it, it, it sent me down this rabbit hole. And I think I understand now the end game for private equity, which nobody has been talking about. Nobody. Uh, but I think it, that conversation that you had, you, you had a comment that you clearly understood. He understood but you didn't dive into it. And I'm going to have you dive into it and I'm going to go with you. Uh, so first of all, let's start. Tell me how, uh, how people can be leaving money uh, on a private equity table. Well, now you've got like, you even, <clears throat> you've even teased the guest because I'm, uh, I'm trying to think back to that conversation because 
in uh I think we'll we'll kind of talk about this, but in like full kind of transparency and just from a timeline standpoint, I had recorded that conversation prior to this article being released. So that art or that conversation had been in queue and it wasn't something that I was planning on just kind of releasing. It just serendipitously happened that way. <clears throat> so the biggest mistake that I see practice owners make is they be, they, they lose focus and lose understanding of the two different ways in which they get paid through their practice, right? You have to think about, and, and I even had a comment in the LinkedIn post that uh, ROB review of optometric business, when they shared the article, there was a comment from an optometrist that based off his title, he had recently sold his practice um, of just not understanding what EBITDA is and what earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization is. So practice owners, they, again, they, they just don't understand that they get paid in two ways from their practice, right? As these, and, and in the, in the context of the article, I'll, I'll keep this conversation on point and just continue that example because the, the article used the example of what I call a solopreneur, right? A solo OD practice, one optometrist that owns a business that is getting paid for the work that they do in the practice clinically and the work that they do operationally slash the equity return that they get on the investment of owning the practice, right? Distributions. When we think of practice owners and how you harvest cash flow out of the practice, it comes in two ways. Typically, you'll see practice owners be paid with a W-2 wage. That is the essentially their replacement costs for working in the practice, i.e. if I wasn't seeing patients and I had to go out and hire an OD to serve in my place, how much would I have to pay that optometrist? And that fundamentally is a business expense to the practice. It's not, yes, you're taking it home as the owner, right? You're taking that home, but <clears throat> you have to think of this as this is a business expense. If we're trying to do this through the lens and the filter and, and draw parity between how you look at your business and how a private equity firm looks at your business, we have to take the money that you're taking out as an optometrist, as a clinician off the table. It's off the equation. And that when you look at what happens post-sale, we get really bug-eyed and googly-eyed over these huge numbers that private equity is dangling in front of us. And, and we'll dive into why those are sometimes mirage numbers in and of themselves. But what can happen if we get distracted by those really big numbers up front is we lose focus and lose sight of the fact that once we sell and we cash that first check, which is always, it's never going to be the full amount for again, deeper conversations, some of which are explained in the article, but you lose that return on investment. You lose the income, the net operating income, the NOI of the business. You give that up the day after you sell, the day after you close. That now belongs to private equity. That is, in fact, part of what they are banking on, figuratively, literally, in getting a return on their investment. So what you're which doing is, okay, is... Which actually would be okay <laughs> if you could sell that asset and walk away. Correct, but, but what you can't. happens inevitably is that you sell that asset and then you're just you're you're just getting paid as a doctor now. And, Correct, and you still have the uh, you still have a certain amount of time that you have to continue to be the doctor. Yeah, very. Uh, I have not worked on a deal where an OD has been able to quite literally hand over the keys, cash that check, and walk away. I forget who I was talking to. It was, and they couldn't describe the, de the details of the deal, which tells me it was partly maybe a game of telephone and you know how things sometimes get lost in translation. 
And maybe there is a private equity deal out there where you got an incredible valuation, relatively speaking, to what we're all used to seeing, 60% of gross, 3.4 times EBITDA, right, et cetera, et cetera, in an OD to OD private sale. But the vast majority of deals are going to include a three-year holdback where two things. A, you're expected to work and quite literally part of the valuation that you got is predicated upon you staying in the practice to essentially bridge the gap and pass the proverbial baton from yourself as the owner to whoever is going to be in your place post leaving. And this is assuming you're going to exit after three years where you, you're going to exit stage left, move off into the sunset. So there's that three-year holdback. Part of that deal that you get, part of the value of the practice is going to be held essentially kind of in escrow, so to speak. And you're going to earn typically 15% of your gross collections. That is by and large, the number that private equity will use, which is why in my article, I use that as well, because the OD, when you, again, thinking of it, how much you're harvesting out of the practice is in two ways. And I assigned 15% to the, to the OD salary and then a 15% operating income. So you're working in the practice for those three years, but you're not able to take the net operating income that goes to private equity now. And so to say that another way, you'd say $150,000 in a million dollar practice, $150,000 as the doctor Correct. and in uh, EBITDA to make it simple, $150,000 yes. in EBITDA. Okay. Yes. And so when they talk about a, let's just say to make it simple and a 10 X multiple, that means they'll pay you for your million dollar a year practice. They'll pay you $1.5 million. 1.5. Correct. To your, to, to your, again, to, to use round numbers, they will give you up front, uh, 60%. 60 to 70%. Okay. So 60, let's say, let's say just to make it easy, 66.6667%. So you get a million dollars up front. They're going to hold back 500,000. When they hold back the 500,000, do you get any growth on that? Uh, um, generally, or it's just being held for three years and then you get it or five years. Generally being held, generally being held in a non-interest bearing account. There's not really any growth on that, so to speak. Okay. So then, so let's say then the, the it, uh, it is three years. Essentially what you're doing is you're turning yourself into an employee for that three years and $150,000 stagnant, no growth at all. Uh, and worst case would be you have growth. And then uh, you're basically taking three years. So you get the million dollars. Wonderful. I take it off the table. But then I got to work in the practice for three years at the same salary as I was as a salary. But then I get $450,000 as an owner if I have no growth at all. Uh, if I were the owner of that practice, I would just I would be out. Uh, that three years would be another $450,000 in my practice, which I can't get until I do the three years. And maybe I get a little piece, the 50000 on top. Correct. We're all square. Yep. Okay. Yep. We're all square. Okay. And that's, and so now play that out when, when, in your math, you, you show how, if I had just waited that three years, et cetera, et cetera, kind of play that out over time. Yeah. So to use your same example there, if we have a 30% optometric net, right? Because to your numbers, we use a million dollar practice, the OD, we have an EBITDA of 150,000, 15%. We have own, we have OD salary of 150,000. So those two numbers combined in a solo OD practice is what we would call the optometric net. It's the total compensation paid to optometrists plus business income. So uh, the optometric net of the practice in this situation is 30%. 
if we own that practice for those three years, we have, and again, to your point, we have no inflation adjustments or no, excuse me, no practice growth. We'll just keep the math the same. So we've got right. 300,000 a year times three years. We've got $900,000 of total free cash flow that we brought home. And we still have the enterprise value of a million dollar practice at the end of that three years. And so now if we go and we sell, so we've had $900,000 of total cash flow that we've harvested out of the practice by owning the practice for those same three years. And we still own the enterprise value of a, of a, of a million dollar practice at $150,000 um, EBITDA at, let's just say you get a, a four and a half multiple on a, on a practice like that for, to private seller. Now you got $675,000 in essential enterprise value of a sale of an asset to an OD. So we've got 675 plus 900,000, right? We've got $1.575 million, which is kind of very close to that $1.5 million that we and sold in private equity. that was at a 10X equity. multiple. That was at a 10X Correct. multiple, not a seven or eight that we're probably getting. Yeah. And, and okay, so let's be fair. Is four and a half multiple of EBITDA to a private sale OD, is that rich? Not, I mean, it, it's, it's not, it, I mean, we've seen it happen, even if we do a three and a half times multiple on that. So if we do 150 times three point times three and a half, that's 525 plus the 900. So we're at one, four, two, five. So, okay. Are we a little bit less on that end? Yes. But here's the rub, Chris, here's the rub. What did that truly cost in emotional and that I, uh, I'm going to go down a slippery slope here and I don't want to ruffle too many feathers. Um, <laughs> let's just say that not everything is as it is perceived and positioned in a post PE sale. I've seen good situations. I've seen not so good situations. I've talked to associates in OD to OD sales that have been very happy. I've talked to OD to OD or uh, OD to private equity sales where the associates there have been happy, but I've also had a number of conversations. I, I here's the thing, and I kind of I know I'm dancing around something here. I have been surprised at how many ODs have reached out to 2020 Money, asking me to find and interview an associate that is working in a private equity backed mm -hmm. deal that would want to come on and talk about it, about what that transition means, because it is their biggest fear and concern of being an associate of a practice where the owner is thinking of selling to private equity. Hmm. They want to know what to be prepared for. What's the good? What's the bad? What's the ugly? Just had one reach out to me on LinkedIn last week um, that basically said they came, they, his wife, and it was actually the husband that messaged me, his wife is working in, or was, excuse me, clearly, or I should say this is an important point, was working, and I'm again, I'm not going to name names here, but was working in a private equity-backed practice. And uh, he said, uh, she's got a lot to share, none good, um, and we don't want to be on the record about it. It's like, I get that. That's fine. That's wow. fine. I... <laughs> I don't want to beat up on PE that much. And this isn't to throw PE under the bus. This isn't to say that, oh, they're, they're the worst thing to happen to optometry. I know there are ODs that are very entrenched into both camps. I'm trying to paint the perspective and just educate ODs from a mathematical standpoint. It's one of the biggest reasons why I love numbers and why I love math is because it doesn't lie and it's unemotional. Follow the money. 
And so my whole goal with this article, this conversation, private equity might be a very, very good option for you in your practice. And as a business owner, your responsibility, dare I say, first and foremost, is to your family, those around you that, that, that are dependent upon you, that care about you, your, your kind of first primary inner circle, which again, is typically family, those that are dependent upon you. And if we think of the business as, it's, as an entity in and of itself, yeah, as a shareholder of your business, the goal is to drive max, max enterprise value of the business. And if you can get that in private equity, knowing the full math and knowing everything and weighing all options, that's your decision to make. I just did this as a way to kind of maybe swing the bell curve or, or just kind of bring the pendulum back. That's the metaphor I was going for. Um, bring the pendulum back a little bit to say, let's just peel back the entire layer of the onion and make sure that we understand the totality of the math, not just when you sell, but the next 24, 36 months and thereafter. Sorry, you, you put a quarter in me and I got going here, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, that's, that's exactly what I wanted you to talk about. And then you, you, you left it with the peeling back of the onion. And so I want to start doing that because I, okay. I have spent now the last couple of weeks uh, diving in. I found a paper by uh, her last name. She's a Cornell PhD with a last name of Bat. And she wrote a she wrote a paper on hospital based private equity, um, where she details like all the ins and outs of what private equity does, you know, in healthcare in general. And, you know, my sense is she was a little bit of a of a after reading it, my sense was that they're a little socialistic. Maybe that's okay. the, maybe they're a little like socialists, right? So it was almost like healthcare should be socialized because it can fix the problem. I don't, I think that's too simplistic. I, right. I, I think my- You know, we'll talk about layers of an onion. There's one right there, right? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think my, my characterization of her perspective is, is too simplistic. I don't think she's a socialist, but I think there was a little bit of a bent there in some of her solutions. But um, what it was really eye-opening to me, because I've, I've taken the approach you have, Adam, is that uh, it, it's like, yeah, I can't blame somebody to do it who, who would want to do it. And I still can't blame them if they want to do it. But when you yes. peel back the onion, you actually see what private equity does. It starts to become very clear about uh, what the end goal is. And so, so there were a couple of things that on the podcast that you did that I think, so people should go back and uh, listen to Adam's podcast. What was his name? Uh, oh, this is Barry. Is it Barry? <laughs> uh, no, it was, it was my eye doctor, uh, Billy Lewis, excuse me. Billy Lewis. Yeah, yeah I, okay, I've, so, I've got like 200 episodes and how many guests on there. I'm like, oh, I wait, know. when was, who, who was that? Yet again? <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. So, so you should go back. Billy Murray, excuse that. me, not yeah, Billy Lewis. Billy, Billy Murray with Eye Doctor. We'll send you the link yeah. and you can tuck that in the show notes if people want to go listen to it. Absolutely. I'll do that. Uh, so it's, it's definitely worth your time. But the take home for me was private equity is not a solve for a practice that's underperforming that has potential. You're not going to get any value in that. Correct. Uh, private equity is not a solve for a really high performing practice that, that the doctor wants to continue to get a whole bunch of uh, additional revenue because they've laid the groundwork and done all this medical and all these you know additional things. Uh, you'll get that once. You'll get paid for that once, but you're not getting paid for it over time. Uh, it is definitely not a solve for rural practices. So if you think that you're in rural, rural Nebraska, I, that was shocking to me, actually. I had, uh, and, yeah, and, I didn't plan on that coming out towards the end of the, I do remember that part of the conversation. I did not plan on taking it down that rabbit hole, but I was, 
um, that was that was an interesting turn. So again, maybe a tease for listeners to go back and check out that episode, yeah, that conversation. Should. No, they totally should. And so those are the things that kind of uh, and and then and then just reinforced like exactly what we've just talked about. It's like look, and they don't make any qualms about that. It's it's uh, you know they know they're giving you an initially high multiplier. They're going to hold back some money. Uh, and, and you're going to get some back end, uh, money for continuing to stay in the practice. They don't make any qualms about the fact that you're going to, they're going to have efficiencies. You know, they, they're not apologetic for that. You're going to have efficiencies, which you pointed out means more, maybe he pointed it out. Somebody pointed out that it means more, more patience. You're going to see more patience through the door in the same amount of time you were seeing before. Now, the comment that I want to get to that you didn't unpack that I want to unpack with you. Uh, and that's where that's where I've spent the last couple of weeks trying to understand myself. Uh, before I get to that comment, what do you think the end game for a private equity for a private equity is? What's the end game in your opinion? Oh boy, I can just see the thread of the sweater being pulled here. Uh, <laughs> generally speaking, the goal of private equity is to double their investment in roughly a three to four year time period, which when you think about that from a compounding annual rate of return, they're looking at something in the neighborhood of providing returns of 30 to 40%, right? In a, in a three to four, maybe five year time cycle. Like when, when you hear about what does this cycle look like? Where's private equity cycle? Well, the whole goal of a firm like this is to take capital, wherever that source of capital came from, whether it was a capital raise or how much of it was debt finance, you know, wherever, wherever this firm got their capital, some of that capital comes from your ultra, ultra high net worth family, what's called a family office, where you pick, pick a, a, a family that owns a football team, maybe. And, and th there's a good chance that they and a couple of other families have pooled money together as a private equity fund to do just that. Go out as a non-publicly traded, i.e. Private, private, pool of assets to go out and buy companies, equity. Like that but in its fund. About, but you're talking about the investors, right? So correct. You're saying, so that's the, that's the drive. You have the investors, the investors, all these people that come in. Okay, we're going to pool our money, as you say. And then we want to get out in three to five years. And, and ultimately, we always talk about somebody's going to be left holding the bag. Who's holding the bag. Left holding the bag because you can't squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. I, you know, I've, I've talked about the, the idea that, you know, who's going to be more efficient in understanding the practice revenue cycle? Somebody that's physically there at some point. Yep. It's either going to be the doctor that's there that understands it or you're so efficient you're going to start, you're going to start not feeling some of the other costs, you know, oh, yep. well, we need to do this. So in any case, at some point that can't get squeezed anymore. Correct. And, then, and, then and, we're and, all, and so go ahead. Well, the, the squeeze is happening. How can we, how can we capture a significant amount of growth in a short period of time, which is the antithesis of what a lot of us think of when we think of investing, when we think of investing, we think, Oh, I'm not going to need it for the next 10, 20 years, low and slow, just crockpot method of wealth building. If I can get, if I can average seven or 8% rate of return in my index funds, that's how the majority of what we would call like just the vast general public thinks about investing, or at least how we'd want them to think about investing. It's not flash in the pan. How can I, how can I maximize a rate of return? So eventually these deals will get packaged up and either be offered on the public markets or they'll be bought by sovereign. I mean, there's, there's a couple of other, there's a couple of end game results, but in the context of the timeline of private equity, 
it's and you use that word, which I think is a very loaded word in the in the M and A field is efficiency, right? How are we going to do that? Well, it's either going to cost or it's going to increase something. You're either going to cut costs, you're either going to reduce costs, and that's either going to come in the form of layoffs, consolidated billing, consolidated scheduling, reducing front desk, tech load, whatever that might be, and or right. I've talked about on on twenty twenty money and in writing. I've talked dare I say ad nauseum about the fact that an optometry practice or any other business can be boiled down into three factors, revenue per widget. In this case, it's revenue per patient, number of patients that you can see per day, doctor days per week. I don't care how you slice your practice. That is your business. And so private equity to gain a return on investment needs to a somehow increase revenues and or b reduce costs eventually, like you'd said, you run out of runway and you, you can only manipulate so much. And that's where, to what I alluded to earlier, or what, what I talked about earlier, I know there are practice owners that have sold to private equity that have said that they are happy. I, I don't have them hooked up to a polygraph. I don't know how, to what extent they're telling the truth. And, and if they really do feel that way, some may do and great. They may have a great experience doing that. But if we can agree, what I just said is true, that yes, there are certain efficiencies of scale that come the day that the ink dries on the contract because of their buying power, their ability to reduce cost of goods. Inevitably, there are baked in, there's a baked in return the moment the ink dries on that purchase agreement for private equity. But that's not the beginning, middle, and end of the game. There is that back end that they're looking to generate those types of returns. And that's going to come from one of those two things that I talked about. In order to increase the net income, one or both of those things have to happen increase gross revenue and or reduce your costs continued ab above and beyond that flash in the pan that you get by what I mentioned earlier, the, you know, the, 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 the purchasing power, the price parity, et cetera, et cetera, on cost of goods, direct expense and things like that. And so, so and so because oh, of ahead. that, sorry, I'm going to jump in because, yep, because yep. of that, you're describing how the investors in the private equity fund will make money over time. Yes. They, yes. You squeeze and then you, you aggregate, and then you offload, right? Yes. And so we are caught up in this cycle. I think the, the comment that you made, and I'm going to bring it up, I'm, I'm sorry to keep having these cliffhangers, but, um, but that's what we all talk about. We've been talking about it for the last four or five years of, okay, at some point, it's going to keep going and keep selling, and then the efficiencies are going to run out, okay? And then some investor in this private equity fund is going to be uh, left holding the bag. Holding the bag. But you made a comment that was two and 20 or something like that. Okay. You said the, so now what we have to think about, cause this is what, what triggered me to kind of d dive deeper is you have the private equity investors, but then you have the private equity firm and the, and, and the private equity firm is basically the one that's running the show. Uh, and then their investors are investing in this big fund. And then what I got from that and, and in reading all of this other stuff is essentially that firm gets 2% per year to manage all of this stuff, right? Correct. Th that's correct. Correct. So I'm going to let you, cause I'll probably butcher it. But so the term that I'm talking about, did I miss it? It's two and 20. What was the two and 20? Okay. Yep. Two Describe and 20. Describe that for the listeners. So in a private equity or hedge fund space, you're typically going to find a fee schedule that is a little bit more expensive than your Vanguard or fill in the blank index fund management fee. Um, you're going to have 2% of assets under management is typically going to be the advisory fee. And then from a 
and 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 I'll give the definition, but it's I'm not trying to dodge the question, but it's a little bit more nuanced because of the definition of what I'm talking about. That 20%, the firm is entitled, based off the advisory agreement and the charter of the fund, is entitled to 20% of the profits of the fund. Okay. And Perfect. so when so you think of it, there. two and 20, 2% 2 of asset yes. under management plus 20% right. of the profits. So I want to pause there, okay? Because I'll, I've actually kind of worked through these numbers and it starts to become astounding. So the first thing- the first You're doing thing what they don't want you to do though. Okay. And, and here, is the, here is the peeling back of the onion that nobody's talking about. And you know, again, this might deter you from being an investor in a private equity fund, but really it, it ought to make us think about the types of people that we're selling our businesses to. And this is why, this is why, is it, is it legal and legit? Yeah, I think it, I mean, I, I think it's totally legal from, from all the things I've read. Uh, yep. Clearly it's legal. Um, I, and there's some interesting reasons why they don't run up against antitrust, which is, which is really interesting, but, um, but essentially, so let's say you have a million dollar fund so that we can use numbers that kind of resonate with, with kind of our sure. thinking a million dollar fund, the private equity group or the private equity firm would come to that fund with 2%. So, and then usually the investors would come with 98%. Okay. Yep. That's correct. Correct. About. Yeah, you're talking about from a funding standpoint. From a funding standpoint, yes. right? So yes. we aggregate a million dollars in funds. The the firm comes with two percent, the investors come with ninety-eight percent. Okay. Yep. It can be it can be variations of that. Real estate sure. tends to be higher. Real estate might be ten and the 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 promote, as it's called in real estate investing, the promote might be ten percent in the other in the in the limited the that's what the general partner brings. The limited partners are bringing the other ninety percent. Okay. So you're calling it the promote. So the general yeah. partner, the the firm. Okay, so so the numbers I've seen were like something like two percent. Correct. So yeah, let's 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 stay in one lane it's here. Still, Sorry, it's still, <laughs> it's still astronomical. So um, so they but then when they go to buy a practice that's a million dollar practice, they might have a million dollars under management, right? And that's where they're getting a two percent annual uh, fee. So so now they've aggregated a million dollars, and so they're going to make twenty thousand dollars just to do all the things that are required to as a firm. manage so the firm, assets. Correct. And they don't have to disclose what they're doing to manage those assets. They're just taking that $20,000 every year. And over the course of 10 years, if those investors are locked in, uh, that's going to be a $200,000, right? Just mm -hmm. off the top of whatever that investment is, whether it's makes money or doesn't make money, they're getting yep. that money. Now, if they go to buy a million dollar practice, okay, and let's just say for the sake of simplicity, uh, I mean, you could you could run the EBITDA on it. So I think I ran, you know, uh, like an 8x multiply, multiplier on the same million dollar, 150,000, they're paying $1.2 million. They'll go to the bank, just like you or I, to buy something, and the bank will finance 70%-ish, yep. and then the investors will basically finance the other 30 so what that means is that private equity firm basically only to buy that $1 million practice at $1.2 million with an 8X uh, EBITDA, uh, 8X multiplier, spends about $740 of their money to buy that, right? Because they, they get 30% of 2%, right? And then the yeah. rest of it is financed through the bank. So that other 70%. So essentially what we're saying is, they come to the table on a million dollar fund of, a, of about $24,000 or $1.2 million uh, asset, about $24,000, but they only have 30% of that. So, uh, excuse me, 
they only have um, they only have two percent of the thirty percent down, which winds up being super insignificant. Yeah. And to and to do that, then they make the distribution, right? So then every year they're going to make their twenty thousand dollars. So let's say it's a thousand dollars, right? It's under a thousand dollars, but it's about a thousand dollars. Their money on the table. Then they're going to make a twenty thousand dollar return just by managing the fund. Yeah. And then twenty percent of the distribution. Right. Not a bad business model, huh? So, so basically year one, they put in about a thousand dollars and they pull out 50 grand and they will do this every single year, no matter what happens to the business, no matter what happens to, uh, as long as it stays stagnant, right? Yep. Uh, even if it goes down, they still have that 20 grand a year. Yep. And, and what I, and I misspoke. No, I mean it again, I'm, I'm, I, I shouldn't say again, but it's very similar to how real estate syndicates work and how general partners and limited partners in real estate syndicates work. So your general partner in this, because there are, there are real estate syndicates. There's, I mean, you have real estate, you have optometry, you have restaurant. I mean, the Carlisle group, which is Blackstone's private, Blackstone's private equity fund. I mean, there is a reason that these, Oh, there's so many different tangents that I could go down here. Um, Let's go. I, I I do want to correct one thing though. I misspoke when I was talking about the promote. The promote in 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 the context of this was not correctly stated. Promote in the real estate term is basically what the sponsor, the person that put the deal together, gets paid after the target after a target profit threshold has been met. Promote, i.e., carried interest. That's where you hear of, especially this comes up in political seasons about. Oh, let's 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 eliminate the carried interest loophole because of the tax aid. Like that is kind of that route hole. So I apologize, I misspoke, I misspoke earlier. But your your math is not incorrect. Your math is not it, it. It's one of the reasons. Again, depending on what side of the equation that you're on, you either love it or you hate it. Um, and people that hate it, and, and again, I don't like to use that word. Um, lightly, maybe I shouldn't use that word, but that disagree with it or have friction with it. I, I, the cliche phrase, like it is what it is. I hate, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I don't yeah. like that I, word. I, look, I don't um, think you have to, you have to like it or dislike it. I mean, I think yeah. you could like it. I think you could dislike it, but at the yeah. very least we ought to understand it. And, understand um, it. Correct. Yeah. And so I think, I think the, the whole point of that, I'm still kind of working through some numbers because I, this has actually become like another, I don't know if it's a CE lecture or a webinar or what, but, yeah. but like putting this together, uh, the, the winners. So no matter what happens, essentially my take home from all of this is that the winners are the PE firm firms. The investors of might lose, the practices might lose, but the PE firm will never lose ever. Ve Worst case scenario, to your point, you leveraged very little and you earned a decent management fee on assets that technically you didn't have to pony up. And and look, we could, this is where I, I can, I can see listeners or hear listeners think of listeners right now, shouting to the proverbial cloud in the sky of like, what, what, how does this happen? It's the same thing in the sense of why do we pay a, if we, if we think of real estate, why do we pay a 6% rip on an a, on a leveraged asset? Like if I sell my $500,000 home and I only have a, a one, and I only have a hundred thousand dollars of equity in that home, well, a 6% rip 
on a $500,000 home is $30,000. If I have a hundred, if I only have a hundred thousand dollars of equity, I essentially just paid a 30% commission dollar on dollars of what I actually owned real estate, going back to real estate, right? The cash out refi as a way to harvest equity out and basically defer profits and not have to pay taxes on that. I mean, there's so many examples of as cliche as it sounds, it is what it is. And those are the rules. But to your point, we don't have to like it or dislike it. That's not the goal of this, but owners should understand the totality of the deal that they are making and the layers of that onion and determine when you reconcile that knowledge with what you want your practice to be and the succession of that practice at the end of the day to be comfortable with the decision that you made. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agreed. Agreed. I think so. Can you can see the screen now? I can. Kind yep. Of shared a yep. little bit different. So this is my my trying to understand it graphically of what we've already of what we've already discussed. So if you're on YouTube, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, you know you can see you can see sort of a grid of of how this all breaks down. But um, but I think this top piece, you know, the PE group, we always think about the investors. Um, and you know, if I'm an investor thinking uh, on LinkedIn, I got. Uh, somebody reached out to me about, I don't think it's an eye care at all, just about, hey, do you want to invest in our, our private equity fund? Give us right. a call, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and, you know, they're talking about, you know, a guarantee of, not a guarantee, essentially a guarantee. A target. Of, you know, yeah. Correct. Um, but, you know, your, your point is not, uh, is, is right. I mean, they're, if you're an investor and, you, and you're a high dollar investor and you can think in a couple of years, I can have a, I can, I can spin it at 30 to 40%. Um, obviously there's a lot more risk in that, right? So like, like you could lose a lot of money. Um, but, uh, and we always wonder about who's holding the bag, but when we think about sort of the infrastructure like this, so if we think about sort of an infrastructure that looks more like this, this is what we talk about all the time, right? So you have an investor PE firm, they buy up a whole bunch of practices. They may have some buildings included in there, but this is really the way it works. Uh, I think that allows you to kind of understand. So where, where there's sort of a hierarchy where it's just these investors, that's not how it works. And so you can see the, the other stuff that, that I read that they're doing is like, so on a building. So if they buy like a building with the practice, then what they'll, they'll wind up doing is they'll wind up leveraging uh, any equity in that building with loans, right? Yep. And then they'll take those loans and put them as distributions and take, you know, and so they wind That's up the leveraging. tax play that we were that I mentioned earlier. Yep. Yeah. So it's just, and they'll like, use the, and they'll use the capital that they harvest out and, and anybody in real estate does this, right. They don't bat an eye at it. Um, it's the way the, it's the way the tax laws are written. It's the way the regulations are written. It's the financing deals. And the, and when I say regulations, banks are constrained to the banking laws and regulations that essentially dictate how their business model operates to hopefully protect what we saw happen in 2008 of being completely over leveraged. So they're still quote unquote coloring inside the lines of the legislation that's written. But yeah, I, I mean, 
building up equity in a, in a building, buying a building that maybe is at 80% occupancy or 90% occupancy, making some improvements, raising rents. Now you get a reappraisal. You, you, you took your value from this to this based off of whatever cap rate or capitalization rate that you're using. You take the gain, you harvest that out, you distribute back to your investors. You take the, you take the, what's left over for you as a general partner, go out and find your next deal, take the capital from your investors that you return because you've demonstrated proof of concept. They now trust, like, and, and want to do business with you. Lather, rinse, repeat. And it just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And hopefully in perpetuity, the proverbial thought that comes up here as well in the, in the challenging uh, question that, you, that you'll oftentimes hear to this is, well, that just sounds like a house of cards. It does. <laughs> You're putting the faith and trust in the person operating the deal. You know, and so I think, I, 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 yeah, and the way you describe it just then, you know, as, as basically a real estate venture, when you, when you equate that to a profession, a healthcare profession, which, and we are not isolated, as you know, dentistry and hospital systems, large hospital systems are owned by private equity firms. Uh, Optometry is kind of late to the game, relatively yeah, speaking. Yeah. And nonprofit hospital systems, which is really staggering <laughs> to me to think that because there was, I think, 1998, there was a, uh, a law that was, uh, was signed that allowed nonprofits to own for-profit subsidiaries. So anyway, you know, that's, again, I'm reading through this document. I'll share the document. Um, yeah, please do. Today, I'd be but, curious to, to, to dive into yeah. it as well. Yeah, but, but I think the, the point in saying all of that is you and, and you know, you're in kind of this unique position where uh, you're, you have this business mind. You understand like this business, okay, well, this is just what happens in business, but you're also emotionally attached to it because of your clients, because From of the your client, wife. Yeah. Yeah. And, and all this kind of stuff. So it's not, so you can't just purely say it's just com completely business, but when you describe what happens to, you know, and you just repeat, 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 repeat with, with business, with uh, buildings, that's what's going on right now in our profession. And the thing that concerns me the most and why I almost think that it well, why, why I, I mean, I definitely don't think it's the right thing, right? It's not the right play for individual doctors. I get it. But the thing that really does concern me and it ought to be concerning to most of us um, on a very serious level is not just the individual doctor selling and the math that you did on the front end. It's what happens when all of that continues, right? Then it's, it's, then the doctor is, is now the widget and, uh, and there's no other options for patients that all they get is this one thing, you know, again, it's, it's driving down, driving down care to a certain level. I mean, I mean, just sort of all these other things that you get concerned about, that's, you know, uh, the, what's, what's left after all of it's done. And, and the private equity firm doesn't care much because they've gotten theirs and the investors at some point will care, but during that path don't, as long as they're hitting while things are going up, uh, then they don't care either, but they might if they, if it goes down, it's the profession and the patients that are left yeah. with more expensive stuff, more stuff they don't need, less, less options. You know, I get questions all the time about how do we use nine, two codes and nine, nine codes and which ICD codes go with different CPT codes and what can be built together and what can't. And this, 
confusion, this uncertainty really holds us back oftentimes to be able to do what we want to do, which is help our patients see clearly and provide their best opportunity for a lifelong vision. And so we built iCode Education for that specific purpose. Uh, we have lots of resources that are based in helping you understand disease states, helping you understand revenue cycles and billing and coding practices. So check out iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. And we have a specific uh, bundle there for you if you'd like to take advantage of it. It's the Premier Billing and Coding Bundle. We've got a 10% discount code just for listeners of this show. Uh, you can just, in the coupon code at checkout, you can enter in iCodeMedia22, that's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E-M-E-D-I-A-22 at checkout. We'd love to have you. We'd love to work with you. Check out iCodeEducation.com. Optometry from a timeline standpoint is we're late to the party. I mean, this has been happening in ophthalmology for years. This is dentistry went this way. Veterinary went this way. Like you said, hospitals have been doing this for years. Um, pharmaceutical or not pharmaceutical pharmacies have gone this yeah. way. Um, and then eventually what can happen in this situation is one exit option is to go public. You have a private equity firm and we take the word private out of it and then replace it with public equity, i.e. Apple yeah. or maybe yeah, an IPO or better to, to better connect this to the pharmacy space, um, CVS, right? Yeah. CVS, not, at, not as a private company, but you, you yeah. eventually end up with publicly traded companies that may have started out as private companies, Aspen Dental, Immediate Dent, Gentle Dentist. Again, I, I, I don't know the dentistry space in depth to know candidly which one of those are public versus private. I do think it's a mix there. I think if my memory serves me right, Immediate Dent is publicly traded gentle dentist is private or maybe it's aspen i don't recall but my point is that is one of the exit strategies which is to take a private company public and now yeah. you're subjected to now now every quarter matters and that again i say that i know listeners you're talking on both sides of your mouth you're an investment advisor you help clients clients manage their money the goal is to get a return yes i get that and i'm and that is not lost on me the question there is where do we draw that line of how and when and to what extent do we participate? How do we essentially quote unquote vote with our dollars? Where do we deploy the dollars? Where do we deploy the equity? If you're buying a broad-based index mutual fund or broad-based indexed ETF, you don't have as much control over that. But if you're controlling the fate and the buyer of your practice or practices, location, real estate, any asset that you have control over, yes, you do have control over that. And again, this isn't a bad or a, this isn't bad or good. I think, I mean, we can, this is more of understand yeah, yeah, the full picture. Understanding that, yeah, you understand yeah. the full picture. And to me, you know, you, you have the ability to, to say, look, it's, it's a financial decision. And I think I, it's fine. I, I, I don't, uh, I think that's your, your position, your fiduciary role. Right. The, um, the, the thing I worry about is the comment that you made was that you, you compared it to CVS, you know, CVS is a publicly held company, whether they are, I don't know, but the, the thing they are. that I worry about is it's not an endorsement or recommendation to go out and buy CVS. Just <laughs> let me get that disclaimer in there, right. As an investment advisor. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but the thing that I worry about is, you know, you'll hear people comparing us to pharmacy. If this, if, if, if private equity is temporary, it's actually all upside to the independent doc that that's entrepreneuring, right? It's, it's all, it's complete upside because if what, if what everybody fears will happen, which is the conversations you've had, the conversations I've had, uh, 
the if 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 that happens then you're just ripe for a new practice to to come up and serve the, the patient. save the day correct but but if it gets to critical mass where you know you have you, you get to the point where you have like the um kaisers right kaiser uh, permanente and yep. they've got so much mass that you have that the public has no other choice and there's no real antitrust that can go against them because of the size of individual practices uh then then that's where you start to see this degradation of what a profession can offer and that's why we think of pharmacists by and large right as you know again this is this is just a characterization of what just a general sense i know it's not what pharmacists do but it's a, just a generalization of what the perception is, is I go to a register, I give a prescription, they ask me, do I have any questions? I say no, they take my money, I'm gone, right? It, it, as opposed to uh, what a pharmacist might be doing in a, in a smaller location or in a hospital-based setting where they're really counseling you and trying to troubleshoot to see, you know, if we go that way, there is no ability to come back and say, well, we're gonna, we're gonna do this differently. So think about the last pharmacy that you went to that had the ability to do something differently. Interestingly, and, 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 and maybe this commercial retail pharmacy, I think there's right. the clear point of emphasis that I would make, because interestingly enough, we actually have a client relationship that, um, he ironically enough, uh, has been in private equity, uh, before or in a consultant role to private equity firms, um, and has worked on some pretty pretty big deals that we would all know of, um, like massive nationwide deals. And his wife is a pharmacist. And the interesting thing was she was sick and tired of being sick and tired in the retail commercial pharmacy space. So you know what they did? They went out and bought a specialty compounding veterinary pharmacy pharmacy. practice. Yep. And they, let's just say they're doing okay. Um, so my point with that is my point with that is niche. It, it it will open the door for specialization. This is the lemonade. This is the lemonade on lemons. Like if we're, if we're going, if we're taking the blue pill in this conversation and going down that rabbit hole and the, the, the opportunity in that type of environment is a greater demand. And thus, if we just believe in econ 101 and price elasticity of demand, then the greater the demand and the limited supply means that the increase now you are back into the specialty optometric high high net low volume type practice to the extent that the optometrist has the wherewithal the technical chops the specialization the training the equipment etc again obviously that's all that, that's all clinical decision but that's that is that's but it's a small silver lining. How many specialty compounding veterinary pharmacies exist? I don't know that answer. I know they know the answer to that. What does so in that example? What's the corollary? What is the correlative uh, example in optometry? Is that do you have a practice? Do these private equity firms realize the the uh, standard of care business opportunity in dry eye, in myopia control, in specialty contact lenses, scleral lenses, ortho K? I'm just spouting off things that I know are specialty. I don't know the clinical aspect of it, (laughs) but I, so do they get involved in that or is, are we going to see, Hey, I'm a private practice optometrist and all I do is ortho K 
all I do is dry. I, I don't know. I guess I'm just kind of yeah. theorizing about what is yeah. that, what does that look like if we, if we drink, quote unquote, drink that Kool-Aid down that rabbit hole? I think, um, so I, I think we're in this transition period right now where I would say, you know, my, uh, my, my perspective on it is that, uh, I think you're right. I think the point is, is that, you know, most people will think of, and maybe they already do, right. Think of optometry as sort of, you know, I, I go in, I got a new prescription, I get glasses. Uh, I think a lot of those specialty services can be offered in a primary care practice, uh, at a really high level. Um, I think that that can be done. But over time, if that if that differentiator puts a squeeze on those primary care practices where it's just not they just can't do it because of all of those other forces that we had discussed, then you do have the opportunity for something specialty where it is just purely like, look, if you need orthokeratology, we do that. If you need dry eye, you got to see somebody else. If you need dry eye, we do that. If you need to see uh, somebody for your retina, you got to see somebody else, you know, where it, it becomes this like purely specialization. Um, I don't know about that. I think down the road that that could probably be the case, but I, I think right now it means there's this huge opportunity for, for practices to, to develop what I've, what I've talked about for a long time now is just pillars, right? Pillars in their practice and, uh, and specialties that are serving patients primarily and then secondarily serve the practice. And to your point about do private equity firms care about it? I think they do. I mean, to their point was, you know, he, he mentioned, uh, Billy mentioned, Billy? Billy mentioned. Billy, yep. yep. Uh, you know, some other, these kind of specialty widgets that we might have in our practices. But um, I think they care about it initially. My question is, do they have a a mechanism to perpetuate those specialties. You know, it's, it's, it is not easy uh, to do that from a top-down standpoint. There's a lot that goes into understanding the nuances of vision and medical and how do we have this conversation and that conversation and how do we bill appropriately for that service and this service over here with this. I mean, uh, that's that really trickles down as, as big and hierarchical as a private equity company might be that's going to trickle down to the, the practices and the protocols within that practice, that individual practice. It is very hard. I'll tell you, it is very hard to just replicate. You know, when I go yeah. in and help practices, I say, this is the way Chris Wolf does it. It's not going to work for most, right. for most doctors. Right. But if I say, how do you do something? Let's figure out how this can work for you based on how you already do it. Well, then we can make it work. So but can, but it, can you scale special though? That's the question. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it, yeah exactly. I, yeah, I was more or less. Just, yeah, <laughs> yes. exactly. Exactly. Exactly right. Adam, this has been fun, man. It has. Can I make Thanks one more um, one more statement please. here, or one more just yeah, um, please to from a listener's perspective, and 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 to tie what we're talking. And, and this is this is private equity. This is real estate. This is hedge funds. This is let me just wrap all of this under the definition of alternative investments. As an investor, don't feel like just because your wealth or your portfolio gets to a certain level that you have to, quote unquote, have to go down this path. If you want to scratch that itch, if you want to get involved in real estate, great. Godspeed. Um, I'm actually, uh, looking forward to sharing in a conversation with Dr. P Kehoe, who is the, um, uh, former AOA president. And 
he's been very transparent and he's, I'm looking forward to having some conversations. The bet the the tease that I'll give is why it's important for ODs to stay in their lane. Um, he's going to share some examples, some anecdotal stories about where things have gone awry from an investing and a business standpoint. So don't think that, you know, we're on here talking about PE and we're on here talking about what it means from an investor's perspective and the returns that PE is looking to generate, which investors participate in to an extent. Those are attractive returns if it works and they are, they're, it's available to accredited investors and qualified investors. So if you're in that where you've liquidated, you've sold your practice, you've got a seven figure portfolio, please don't think that you are obligated to chase these shiny objects or that you have to do this. There, we have a laundry list of clients where boring still works. Seven and eight figure portfolios where they are just happy as a clam with some with a well-diversified portfolio. And that's not a pitch for, I don't care who you work with. I don't care what advisory firm or if you're a do-it-yourself investor, right? You do you and what makes most sense for your plan. But please don't feel like there's this, this uh, complexity correlation that follows your wealth curve and that it's a positive one-to-one -one correlation. Again, if you want to scratch that itch, Godspeed, do your due diligence, understand the layers of the onion, be ask for transparency on what the goal of the investment is, how does it, how does the originator, how does the in, in investment term, how does the sponsor define success? What does the cycle look like? What's the timeline for that? Read the disclosure documents, read the PPMs, the private placement memorandums, because if you do, let's just say it's, it's not a children's book, short term, um, thin reading material. There's a lot of moving parts to that. So just know if you're going to do these things, understand how the sponsor gets paid, understand how the deal comes to term, understand what the goal is. Um, and, and, and answer it, it like, um, reconcile that with what you're solving for in your own investment portfolio. So just, I, I implore people to do that due diligence in the context of this conversation, a little bit of a right turn there at the end, but hopefully no, it still ties in. It's perfectly appropriate. I'm glad you, I'm glad you gave that, that advice because I think it does, uh, it kind of wraps up all the shiny objects. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and you know, the, the thing is, is we hear about the, we hear about all the upside. We never hear about the downside. Yeah. Almost. And, and I can't wait to there's... listen to Pete Kehoe's, uh, <laughs> about that. So, I was, uh, I, and kudos. Thanks to, uh, thanks to, uh, um, Dr. Mick Kling, Dr. Ted McElroy, I, I, you and I didn't get a chance to connect in, uh, you weren't at Expo, were you at West? I was, but I or, wasn't able to connect. To you I say you, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So kudos and, and shout out and thank you to, uh, to both Mick and Ted for, for kind of again just ended up in a room and random conversation to see Pete there. I'm like, Hey, I know your name and struck up a conversation and here we go for, uh, on the record coming up here in a couple weeks. So, yeah. um, That's yeah, great. it'll be a fun conversation. Really looking forward to it. That's awesome. So, uh, Adam, thanks for doing this. Uh, I'll let you get back to the rest of your day and, um, we'll connect soon. Thanks, Dr. Wolf. I appreciate it. Thank you for being, or thank you for a lot. I'm used to saying thank you for being here because <laughs> I'm the one hosting, but <laughs> thank I you know, for I'm allowing me to play in your sandbox right now. So, um, really appreciate it. Appreciate all the work that you're doing and helping optometric owners plan their life and, and manage their practice on purpose. So thanks for all the work that you're doing in the space as well. <laughs>